On this edition of Making Contact, we'll explore the unique cultural and historical specificity of corporal punishment in black homes and its connections to racial violence in America. We'll speak with author Dr. Stacy Patton about her latest book, Spare the Kids, Why Whooping Won't Save Black America. Dr. Patton, first, thank you so much for joining us today here on the program. The idea of whooping or spanking in America has been largely accepted under the adage, spare the rod, spoil the child. This particular adage for years has justified the physical discipline of children. Talk a bit about the larger societal interpretation of spare the rod, spoil the child, and how this interpretation has duped black parents in participating in the dehumanization process of black children, as well as interfered in our abilities to parent. So firstly, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child is one of those uh, popular phrases that gets invoked in debates over uh, hitting children. And even people who don't go to church, uh, that's the one scripture they love to misquote. And it's actually not even in the Bible. Uh, Spare the rod, spoil the child is a line that comes from a 16th century poem called Hudibras. Um, and uh, the closest thing you'll see to that in the Bible is Proverbs thirteen twenty four: He that spareth the rod hateth his son. But here's the thing, that when you read the Bible, you have to understand Hebrew, the uh, original interpretation of Scripture. You also have to understand historical context mm-hmm. as well. And so what happens is we often have this very literal interpretation of Scripture. Uh, a rod is a symbol. Um, it connotes wisdom and direction. Uh, it, and, in terms of it being a, an actual thing, it's like a, it has long and has a staff on it and like a, a crook at the top of it. And it's used for guiding sheep. So if a sheep, you know, got away from the, the rest of the flock and got stuck in a, a hilly area or something like that, the shepherd would take it and pull the sheep back in so that they're protected. The only time a shepherd would wield a rod is to ward off wolves. Um, Sheep were very valuable. Um, They were used for sacrifices to God. And so you didn't want to give God a a sacrifice that was blemished in any sort of way. So you you don't see where uh, shepherds are picking up a rod and hitting a child. There are a number of verses in Proverbs that talk about the rod being used on the uh, backs of adults. Uh, but we see people conspicuously quiet about those verses as well. Um, one of the things I talk about a lot, too, is how Christianity is not uh, native to, um, was not native to our West African ancestors who ended up on those uh, ships uh, and were dropped off in different parts of the diaspora. Um, we weren't reading Bibles. Oh, uh, we didn't worship Jesus. Uh, and that's not to say that Christianity didn't exist in Africa prior to uh, Europeans' contacts uh, with folks from West Africa. It existed in Egypt and Ethiopia, but West Africans didn't learn Christianity from them. And so we didn't believe this concept of born in sin. We weren't saying spare the rod, spoil the child. It wasn't part of a parenting blueprint that we brought over here. And for the first 100 years of enslavement in this country, West Africans did not, well, enslaved Africans here did not uh, practice Christianity in any significant numbers. They weren't even speaking English. It was illegal for them to read and to write. 
ultimately the kind of Christianity that they would be indoctrinated into is slave Christianity. There was a piece that just came out on NPR talking about a slave Bible uh, from the 19th century that was used to indoctrinate slaves into Christianity. There's all kinds of passages that are, are missing from that. So we really need to understand uh, Hebrew. We need to understand how we came to this religion under what circumstances. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to practice Christianity, we need to uh, purge out some of the toxic theology um, that is hurting our children and hurting our communities. Mm-hmm. To reiterate what was just said, um, the correlation is that white supremacy religion historically has been used as a tool to oppress and control. And this has tricked some black folks on the ways in which one may discipline a child. Uh, Based on uh, your thoughts, how do these ideas of physical punishment aid in destroying black humanity? And how does it intersect with racism and black parenting? Well, see, a lot of black parents will tell me that whooping children is a black thing, mm-hmm. um, that white people don't beat their kids. And I say that's absolutely false. Uh, whooping your child is the whitest thing you can do to destroy a black child. When you understand the historical trajectory of corporal punishment uh, as a ritualistic disciplinary uh, practice, it emerged in Europe. Um, there are uh, societies around the world, indigenous cultures uh, in North America, South America, in um, Africa, where this type of coercion and physical, ritualistic physical punishment of children did not exist because children were held in a completely different value. Um, you know, West Africans, for example, didn't believe that children were born in sin. Uh, they believed they were reincarnated ancestors. Uh, the Nigerians gave their kids names like Babatunde, father has returned, Yedatunde, mother has returned. The Bang people would never put a child, a baby on the floor because it was disrespectful to do this to a god. And so the process of colonialism, mm-hmm. uh, the Middle Passage experience, the enslavement process, indoctrination into Western Christianity altered the way people on this side of the diaspora um, you know, parented their kids. And it also altered what would happen in the aftermath of colonialism on the other side of the diaspora. So we have to understand beating kids as a historical process that is connected to white supremacist ideology about children, about race, about black bodies, and how it functioned in turning human bodies into shadow for profit And how it created a kind of elusive black parenting where black parents were given this idea that they could control their children's destiny, mitigate harms, be protective by preparing them for the harsh realities of plantation life. I mean, we still see this today when parents say, well, you know, better for me to beat my child than the police officer to assault them, arrest them or kill them. And I say, well, how's that working for black America? I call it the beloved complex. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's very real. And I want to get into that. But also one thing in preparing for this conversation, in the past, you've said that your activist work is centered on saving black children from brutality and death at the hands of people that love them. I want to really talk more about that statement and then also how did you get into this work and, and why are you so passionate? So I often hear black parents say, once again, um, Better for me to beat my child than for the police to kill them. And then I'll ask, well, 
you know, name the black children who have been killed by police officers, the unarmed black children. They can tell me about Tamir Rice. They can tell me about Mike Brown and a few others. And then I'll say, well, how many black children are killed each year in this country at the hands of their parents and caretakers as a result of child abuse? And they'll guess maybe a dozen. And I'll say, no, it's about 360 black children who are killed every year in this country. That's a fatality rate that's three times higher than all other racial groups. And and most of the perpetrators are black women age 40 and under. This is what the data tells us. And so I have to give them a very harsh truth that black children are actually more at risk of being assaulted, seriously injured, or killed by their parents and caretaker than a police officer. Now, I understand the fear that a lot of folks parent with, and it is real. State-sanctioned violence against black bodies, regardless of age, is real. It's always been real. Black parents going all the way back to slavery and in the post-Reconstruction era, during the lynching eras, always had this fear of how can they keep their children alive? How can they, what can they do to make sure they survive childhood and come out okay? And as a people, you know, we need to understand that our children can grow up to be healthy, productive, loving, law-abiding citizens without us putting our hands on them. And we often speak the grammar of white supremacy when we talk about our kids. These kids today, blah, blah, blah. These kids need a whooping. And, you know, and then when we grow up, we celebrate it. We say, well, I'm the man I am today. I'm the woman I am today because my mama whooped me. I'm not in jail. I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, steal things. I don't, I'm not on drugs and all of this sort of thing. So we have very low, some people have very low standards about their prospects. And I say to them, well, then you agree with Massa that in order to make black people into good people, that we have to process our bodies through violence. So beating children is a form of internalized racism, and it is so rife in our culture. Spanking doesn't necessarily mean that or disciplining your child physically doesn't mean that you will protect them from the world. I mean, there was an article that you wrote about a young man who uh, I think uncle or father had beat him on social media. And it was because he was participating in street tribes or, or gang culture, right? The young man wound up being killed anyway. So there, it's not like it's a guarantee. Uh, and you mentioned something that was really shocking to me. It was like, you said 360 black children per year. That's almost a death per day. What would you attribute to these high numbers and and why is this plaguing and and happening within our community so much? So it's a combination of things. It's poverty. uh, It's neglect. It's frustration. It's not having enough resources. It's living around echo hazards and food deserts. It's a number of stressors. And then people who are parenting with their own untreated traumas as well. Uh, It's not having alternatives. Um, you know, there's all kinds of triggers for this. And, you know, his parents not having resources and not being given parenting classes and things like that. And also that we live in a culture that celebrates violence against children. I mean, parents are the only group. When you think about family violence or domestic violence, parents are the only group of hitters where it is okay for them to publicly celebrate hitting kids. And to repeat it. And so we have comedy 
We have comedians who joke about everybody's talking about Kevin Hart now. But he's joked about, you know, hitting his son over the head with a dollhouse if he caught his child playing with his daughter's toys. He joked about punching his nine-year-old daughter in the throat for wanting juice. Bernie Mac did it. The Wayans brothers. I mean, you know, many of our most noted uh, black comedians have joked about it. Preachers preach about it. People write songs celebrating black mothers who beat their kids. Um, so everywhere we turn, there are people who are uh, uh, adding to this ecosystem of childism mm-hmm. and aggression toward kids. On social media, people are picking up uh, video cameras and recording themselves shaming and beating their kids for validation, for likes. Uh, you see this on sites like World Star Hip Hop, on Facebook Live, YouTube. It's a whole genre of it. So we've got this entire ecosystem that contributes to the degradation of children and ultimately and sadly, in some cases, their deaths. Mm-hmm. One more popular image that uh, to reiterate what you just said would be Toya Graham. Uh, and this is in Baltimore. This is uh, post-Freddie Gray rebellions. Her son is an African-American woman who was, you know, hitting her son upside his head because he was with a group of young men who were throwing rocks at the police officers. People held her as being the mother of the year, and, and this is how we're supposed to treat our kids, and this is tough love. Is this tough love? And if not, what should she have done? How should she have responded to her fear and concern around her son being uh, another Freddie Gray? So the whole conversation about tough love is problematic for me because they a lot of people see the hitting as love. Those two things don't belong in the same sentence at all. So love is not pain. Love is not pain. It okay. should not hurt. And 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 just from a developmental perspective, mm-hmm. it you know, children's brains begin growing at infancy. It's not complete. You don't come out the womb with a complete brain. So all this developmental stuff keeps happening over the lifespan of the child. Brain development completes at age 24. So when you're hitting kids, what happens as they're developing is the messages of pain and love merge together in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And so the two become a biological experience. So people develop these dysfunctional messages about love. And we wonder why boys may grow up to become men who hit women, why women stay in relationships where they are subjected to being hit because their parents primed them for this. So that whole conversation about tough love was so problematic. I wrote a piece in the Washington Post about Toya Graham, and I took a lot of heat from black folks and white folks who said she was a hero. And I said she was not a hero. Like you, I understood her fear, her anxiety. She said, I didn't want my son to become another Freddie Gray. I totally get that. What bothered me was the larger conversation and celebration of a black mother going upside, you know, a a young black male's head in public and everyone seizing this as a moment to celebrate. So the message was, we don't need the police. We don't need the National Guard. Send out the black moms to beat these boys. So then the message also is, is that these young thugs are the true enemy of peace. It's not about generational divestment in Baltimore City. It's not about the broken schools. It's not about the echo hazards. It's not about lead poisoning in in neighborhoods like where Freddie Gray grew up. It's not about, you know, not having culturally relevant pedagogy in the schools. It's not about any of this systemic and intentional divestment 
of black life in Baltimore. So rather than confront those issues, whoop your children. Mm -hmm. That's a problem I had with that entire conversation. So, you know, police brutality gets let off the hook. Militarized policing gets let off the hook. All of these things. We just have to whoop our kids some more. You're listening to a conversation with Dr. Stacey Patton, the author of Spare the Kids, Why Whooping Won't Save Black America, and this is Making Contact. If today's conversation has provided you with some food for thought, do me a favor and take a minute and subscribe to our podcast. Sign up for Making Contact updates, take our survey, or join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to the conversation with Dr. Patton, exploring the unique cultural and historical specificity of corporal punishment in black homes. Moving forward in our conversation and looking more at corporal punishment within schools, the national conversation has really overlooked the horrendous truths when it comes to the physical discipline within schools. I personally was surprised to learn that corporal punishment is legal in 18 states. That's over 160,000 students in these states that are subjected to corporal punishment in one school year. And in 2012, for instance, black children made up 18 percent of the student population, but were 35 percent of the reported cases involving corporal punishment, according to the Education Department Office for Civil Rights. Dr. Patton, if black children make up only 18 percent of the student population, but are 35 percent of the reported cases involving corporal punishment, why is it that our children are being disproportionately punished in this manner? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's 18 states that allow corporal punishment in public schools. Most of those, pretty much all of them are confined to the South. Uh, When you look at a map of where uh, this is still legal, um, those states also mirror the southern states that had the largest number of lynchings. It corresponds. And corporal punishment is legal in... Every state, with the exception of New Jersey and Iowa, allows corporal punishment in charter and private schools. We don't have the federal data because those schools don't get federal funding and don't have to report. So we don't even know how widespread the problem is in those types of schools. Um, So you have situations where parents will sign opt-in forms. Uh, So to say, if my kid is acting out, go ahead and paddle them uh, so I don't have to come from work to do this. Um, We do see a slow downticking in instances where kids are being hit, Uh, but black children and children with developmental disabilities are disproportionately the ones that are punished. Um, That's because you have a, uh, a national school system that is predominantly white and female in terms of the teaching force. And so they have, uh, they come into the class and they process children through an attributional lens that is colored by racial biases, um, black children's behavior. Even when they act out the same way as white kids, it's just perceived differently. White children who are paddled get paddled for things like destroying school property, bringing weapons, you know, things like that. But black children are punished for behaviors like, 
not having the right clothes on, uh, you know, challenging a teacher, rolling their eyes, you know, just disrespect in that sort of way. Um, and so we see black adolescents and adolescents in general in the society being criminalized. A century ago or even a half a century ago, you know, things that teachers and, and uh, principals would deal with in the school through detentions or talking to a kid. Now they've bought in, you know, police officers and uh, school resource officers uh, to do this. Um, so that's contributing to it. It just boggles my mind how the law says that teachers and principals are supposed to be mandated reporters for child abuse, yet you put paddles in those same people's hands. And black people buy into this type of Jim Crow education. And so they actually think it's good. And the thing is, we have to be clear that this isn't necessarily always cross-racial physical punishment that's going on. In my book, I talk about this issue in Mississippi. The schools are are, you know, heavily segregated. So it's black principals and black teachers beating black children. And it's sanctioned by the community. And generally paddling is the first step in the school to prison pipeline. So instead of dealing with overcrowded schools, you know, bad resources, horrible educational outcomes, poverty, you know, all of those things, just paddle the kids in school. Explain that further, how this is directly related to the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. So it goes hand in hand with, you know, the disproportionate uh, suspensions and expulsions of of black children um, for the same sorts of behaviors. Just the the physical. This part is just physical. Um, When you have national policies like no child left behind, race to the top, where this there's this pressure to produce good outcomes through a testing culture uh, with pedagogy that's not culturally relevant to students. It's not teaching them critical thinking skills. It's not tapping into uh, their talents. It's not inspiring kids. You have a revolving door of teachers who are outside of the student's culture. Uh, You have overcrowded classrooms. Um, it, it's a powder keg. It produces, situ- you know, educational environments that, you know, are not stimulating, are coercive. Um, and uh, so when you have kids who are being hit into in, in, in the classroom or in the principal's office, it changes the energy, just like, you know, metal detectors. You know, imagine coming to school every day. You've got to go through a metal detector. That doesn't make you feel good about, you know, going to to school every day. And people will point to Columbine as the beginning of this. When you had middle-class white boys who went and shot up a school, but black uh, schools um, bore the brunt of all of this militarization uh, within the school system. Uh, And that's why I have to laugh when I hear black people say, well, our kids don't shoot up schools. Well, that's because they got metal detectors in there because the racists decided that, oh, these white boys shot up the school, but we're going to put the metal detectors in the black schools, you know, and and it's just such a dysfunctional conversation. Um, So, you know, you have imagine having a kid who's hit in the classroom and then that impacts, you know, how they feel. There's shame involved. It messes with the the learning environment itself. Um, A kid who might hit a, a teacher back who tries to hit them will be charged with a felony for trying to practice self-defense in those situations. You have male teachers who paddle female students. 
you have uh, teachers and principals and coaches who've actually injured kids, but many of these districts have something called an immunity clause, which basically says if you injure a child while, you know, in the course of administrating this, you will not be prosecuted. But yet a parent who bruises their child and they end up in an emergency room will be prosecuted for this. Um, so it falls right in the, the, the it's just another tactic to push kids out mm-hmm. of schools and into the juvenile justice system. For a parent who's listening to this conversation and they're processing, uh, and they've maybe been guilty of this as well, what kind of tools can you provide them with initially so that they will begin to move down a different path that's non-physical when we think about punishment? Mm-hmm. So I think step one is to do some self-reflection. Look back on your own childhood. Connect with your child body and remember how you really felt when someone was threatening you, putting their hands on you. Remember what that belt felt like. Remember what that set of switches felt like and be honest and own those feelings. Uh, Remember the triggers. So a lot of times people will hit their kid for normal developmental behaviors, particularly if they grew up in a house that was very strict. Um, where, you know, if you did something wrong, that was completely normal, by the way, um, and your parent hit you. And so now you're a parent and your kid is doing the same thing. A lot of times you're actually reacting, their behavior triggers you because uh, you're actually reacting to stuff that happened in your own childhood. So step one is is dealing with your own childhood, being honest about how you felt, dealing with those feelings, putting language to those experiences, putting feelings to those experiences and experiencing whatever comes from that, trying to have a conversation with your parents, even though it might be hard, learning about child development, right? What's normal behavior? Um, Learn about the, you know, uh, brain development. Uh, What's normal for a toddler to do, an infant and so on and so forth. So what's happening with your child's body? Learn about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, the side effects of hitting kids, right? All of that is really found in the cultural conversation, um, you know, learning that a lot of the stuff that we've been taught, it's all a myth, right? Your, Your mama lied, your grandma lied, the preacher lied, right? And I'm not saying this in a disrespectful sort of way because they've just been parroting you know, these lessons. And you also said this is a loss of control by the parent when they act in this manner. Yes. A lot of parents get angry with me when I say hitting your child is harmful and you should stop. Well, if you're a people who, you know, for generations have been under siege, it is very easy to misconstrue uh, cruelty for love and protection. And so, you know, they really think that they're preventing their child from entering the prison system. And I say, go watch the 13th, right? (laughs) That documentary will take you all the way back to the post-Reconstruction era and talk about the rise of the carceral state. And once again, in the 1970s with the war on drugs, and you see all the players, you know, mass incarceration doesn't exist because we're not beating children enough. It's because of greed and racism. And this is what white supremacy does, right? So learn that history. Understand systemic racism. 
understand how it manifests itself in the school systems and so on and so forth. So we need to, again, this is changing the cultural conversation. We have to end the conversation right there. I've been speaking with the author, Dr. Stacy Patton, about her book, Spare the Kids, Why Whooping Won't Save Black America. If you're interested in hearing the full conversation with Dr. Stacy Patton, you can log on to the Making Contact website. That's www.radioproject.org. If you've enjoyed this week's program, do us a favor by sharing this episode with folks or join us online at www.radioproject.org and drop us a comment about today's program. Also, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. <laughs>